Turn to the end of our Bibles. Revelation 21. And if the Lord doesn't come within the next hour, we will uh, at last finish this wonderful book. I hope you've enjoyed hearing it as much as I've enjoyed preparing for it and speaking about it. Revelation 21. We'll begin just by reading it a verse at a time, and we'll comment as we go through it. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Right off, just reading those words, you shouldn't just be able to sit there and say, oh, okay. The first, the first earth, that's talking about this earth. It's gone. <laughs> Think about that. The first heaven, the sky, the, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, they're gone. Wow. They're gone. They passed away. Now, uh, before we get into the passage, I'd like to say just a few things to, to clarify and maybe set in our minds. In fact, as we go through this, there's a lot of misconceptions and presuppositions we're just going to have to throw by the wayside if we're really going to understand. So let me tell you right now, before we get into these two chapters, I want you not to assume anything about how things are going to be. Okay? For example, there was no more sea. Now you say in your heart, oh no, how could I do without the ocean? You know, I like to go to the beach. I see a troubled look on some faces. Listen, the reason, and we need to understand this, and if you're a believer, you'll under, you will understand this. If there are things in God's creation that are especially close to your heart, that really speak to you, that you love, you, do you know why? Whether it's the ocean, or it's going to the mountains, smelling the pine trees, seeing the snow-capped peaks, you know, a, a rippling brook. Why do you think you love those things so much? That's right. It's because you see a, uh, an example of God in them, but they're nothing compared to Him. You see, they're the things that are made by Him. The reason that you love them so much, and the reason I love them so much, is because they remind me of Him. He made them for... It's not an accident. He made them for that purpose. That as we see the handiwork of God, we might see beyond it and see Him. But you see, when we are with Him, we don't need those um, props anymore. It doesn't mean that uh, there aren't going to be wonderful things in the new creation. Obviously, I think you did a pretty good job on the first one, don't you? I think you'll do a pretty good job on the second one too. So don't worry about it, okay? But the thing we need to remember that what is going to make heaven heaven is Him. Remember that. You'll, you'll, you'll believe it when you're there if you don't believe it now. Okay? The other thing uh, I want to talk about is the time element here. I, I talked to a few people about this last week. Uh, they were kind of surprised. When we talked about the great white throne, you know, many of you have probably seen these uh, timelines, particularly for prophecy, right? You know, and you've got, well, we'll pick up at the church age. I'm not going to begin at the beginning, but you've got the church age, you know, and so far it's a couple of thousand years. 
and I'll, I'll go from my, my uh, right to my left so you can read in the right direction here. Um, you got the church age, and then the rapture, and it's a little blip, right? You know, boop, because it happens in the twinkling of an eye. How, how long does it take an eye to twinkle? Okay? So you got a little blip there for the rapture, where the church goes up. And then you got the tribulation, which we know is seven prophetic years, seven years of 360 days each. Then there's a little, another little blip, which is the resurrection, first resurrection, so that all that know God up to that point can go into the next section, which is the millennium, which is a thousand years. Then you'll see on your chart a, a throne, typically, sitting on clouds. That's obviously the, usually the way they draw it. And then the, what's called the eternal state, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Forever. It doesn't end. There's no limit on it. But the thing is, the great white throne, I think people often see that, kind of like the rapture, you know, it's a little blip. Whoop! But, but we have no basis for thinking that somehow the great white throne is going to take an instant of time. It's not. And in fact, I pointed this out last time. What does it say in verse um, 13? At the end, they were judged each one according to his works. Now, first of all, doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it, you know, God's not going to just toss everybody in a big heap into hell. Each person, every single person, is going to have a personal time before the great white throne. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to face Him. And there's going to be a review, and there's going to be a book that will be opened with your life in it. And that's going to take time. But doesn't that sound like God? He's so just, you see. So that there's not going to be any doubt when He's done. I mean, if you were able to speak, which I doubt, you will say, Lord, send me to hell. I deserve it. If Peter said in the flesh, seeing Jesus with his glory veiled, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I'll tell you, there's going to be no doubt. And so, and there's no reason why this should not take as long as it's going to be necessary for God to one by one justly and carefully judge each sinner. That's going to take a while. But... Don't worry about it. God's not in a hurry. And you see, that's why I believe this is such a momentous occasion. We get this picture that the believers are going to be someplace else, you know, in, I guess, another partition or something. Well, all this takes place. No. Why? Jesus is here. I believe we will be there with Him. Watch, observing this. This will be another... You see, remember what God is doing? He's in the business of revealing Himself this is going to be such a revelation, I'll tell you, of the judgment and the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God. I believe it will be an eternal lesson as we, I believe, observe this whole proceeding. And the angels as well. Okay. So, along with that then, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what's the time element? That, well, you know, you listen to the evolutionists, and uh, depending on who you talk to, you know, this first heaven and first earth took a while to uh, get here. You know, fully populated and everything. We're talking six billion, eight billion years. Are we going to have to wait that long for the second heaven and the second earth, do you think? Huh? <laughs> Obviously not. This is not the only passage in Scripture that clearly indicates that God literally did create the heavens and the earth in six days. Because He's going to create a second set if you will, quickly. We don't know exactly how long. Maybe six days. I don't know. But it's not going to be six billion years. Okay? Now it says, 
the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's a graphic description of that in 2 Peter 3. He has very strong words about how that is going to happen. He says that uh, this earth and all the works that are in it, this is very important, by the way. Doesn't it make sense that we don't carry this earth into, you know, this is going to be the earth in, in the eternal state? It's, it's, it's filthy. I mean, just think of all the pornography that right now covers the earth in digital form, printed form, you know, buried. The, all the sins that have taken place and, and the blood that has flowed into the ground. It's just the very molecules, you know, that are still in the air that Hitler breathed. And you and me. The whole earth is just, I'm sorry, it's filthy, it's tainted. Doesn't it make sense that God is going to get rid of it? And the way it's described in 2 Peter 3, it says, with a great roar, it says the elements will uh, burn with fiery heat. That's a beautiful word that God uses there. The word element means the very basic, smallest things of creation. Now, we use that word to denote the hundred plus, you know, elements that uh, I see uh, Andy nodding already, you know, chemistry, right? That all things are made out of from hydrogen up through the uh, transuranic uh, elements. It says they're all going to be melted with fiery heat. And it, and it sounds like, I don't know, but um, let me illustrate. And you'll understand what I'm talking about here. When they set off the first atomic bomb, they didn't know whether there wasn't not going to be a chain reaction, the whole atmosphere was going to be burned up and they were going to incinerate the earth. Did you, ever, did you know that? <laughs> they did because they'd never done it before. Now they have this ball of uranium that, that's com compressed and very dense and what's happening there is mass, matter, things you can touch is being converted into pure energy. That's why they're so powerful. And they didn't know that once that started in this one place out in the desert that it wouldn't then continue in the atmosphere and go all the way around the earth and you'd have this big fireball and poof. Now, uh, they did, when the issue came up, of course, they went, went away and did calculations with physics and so on. But to the very end, no scientist, including Oppenheimer himself, could say 100% we don't know that this thing is not going to spread. Because it's conceivable. And I believe that's what's, what, what God is going to do. I, I, I believe he's just going to do that kind of a chain reaction throughout the whole universe. All the matter is going to be gone, and it's going to be one big bundle of energy. And it's going to be, talk about purifying. Now, then you can speculate, is he going to then use that, you know, to make the new heavens and earth, or is he going to start from scratch? I don't know. He started from scratch the first time. So it won't be difficult to, for him to make something out of nothing again. But that's, think about that, because there's a practical application of that. He says it in 2 Peter 3. He says, seeing that these things are going to be consumed this way, you know, what manner of people ought we to be? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think my heart should be here <laughs> if this stuff is going to be all burned up. Okay. Well, no mores. We saw the first no more. There are many no mores in these two chapters. And I said, uh, for those of you that love the beach... You're just going to have to trust God because he says there's no more sea. Okay, uh, verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, well, as far as the city, we're going to see a lot about the city later, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that yet. Other than it's, it's beautifully described here, in that he's, he compares it to a bride. And we've had weddings here, and uh, all you married people know the pains that a woman goes to to prepare for the wedding. I mean, not a thread is loose, right? And no, they're very beautiful. You know, there's always a... <gasps> in the crowd as she walks in, you know, for the wedding. And that's the picture God is trying to show us here about the city that he will prepare. So, you know, don't, don't be confused here. The bride now is not talking about the church. He's talking about the city that God will prepare and, and bring down at that time. And the point is going to be very beautiful and just like that bride. Just so adorned, so beautiful, so perfect. But uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about the city later. I liked... Uh, the verse 3, we could just speak on this the whole hour. Look, look at the phrasing here. It's stressing the idea that at last, after all the history of earth and, and all the trials and tribulations and, and sin and so on, what was meant to be is finally going to be realized in that we, his people, are going to be with him. With him. Very close to him. In fact, the phrasing is, is very strong. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's, that's the city. He's, he's talking about the city there. And by the way, God uh, will dwell in the city. We'll see that later. The temple of God is in, or pardon me, not the temple, the throne of God is in the city. We'll see that in the, in the next chapter. Okay? So the Lord Jesus Christ will dwell. If you want to know where he will be, he will be in the throne in this city. Do you understand? It's a beautiful picture. We're, we're in the same city with Him. But not more than that, we're, we're children too. We're family. Isn't that great? And it's going to be like that forever. It's not going to ever stop. It's not going to ever change. So close to God. And so He says things like, uh, and He will dwell with them, you see? He'll live with them. That's great. That's beautiful. That's, that's the whole purpose of creating us to begin with, to be as close to Him as we possibly could. He, he will dwell with us. And they shall be His people. And I like this. And not just God will be, but God Himself will be with them. You know, all the symbols are gone. All the shadows are gone. At last, later on, it'll say, and they shall see His face. As you're looking at me right now, most of you are anyway, and you see my face... You're going to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ just like that. You're going to be able to look at His face. What will that be like? What do you think? To finally see Him. It says, Whom having not seen you love, what will it be like to see Him? I can hardly wait. To see Him. To thank Him. To praise Him. Face to face. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We mentioned last time, when we talked about uh, the fate of those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that it makes sense that, first of all, since an unsaved person is chosen, they don't want God. They don't want to be with Him. They don't want Him in their life. That that is their doom. But the problem is, where God is not, there cannot be any good thing. Because all good things come from Him. And so, like 2 Thessalonians, it says that they will be cast from the presence of the Lord. That means that there cannot be a good thing where they are. By definition. Because God is not with them. They've chosen that lot. And now you may be sitting here and, and uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus. You say, well, I'm living a pretty good life now. You know, I have good times. I don't need God. You're, you're sadly mistaken. If there's any good in your life, did you know that ultimately you can trace it to God? Even pleasure, even physical pleasure, is because of the way He made you? Now, you may use it for wrong reasons. That's up to you. But if there's any good, any joy, any happiness, any physical pleasure, any other kind of pleasure, it's ultimately because of Him. The very breath you breathe comes from Him. Your heartbeat comes from Him. As Paul said in Acts, in whom we live and move and have our being. That's all going to be gone. Like uh, the Lord said to the rich man in hell, you know, in your life you had your good things, past tense. They're all gone. But beyond that, besides the, the lack of good things, you want to talk about no more is in hell. There's no more joy, no more happiness, no more pleasure. No more, ever again. But on top of that, remember, it's a place of punishment. It's a place of judgment where God the righteous judge must act because he said... The soul that sins shall die. And that's the punishment. Well, on the other hand, here in, in heaven with God, there has to be nothing but good stuff. Putting it crudely. Because God is good, you see. And so you, you have all these wonderful uh, no mores. And I love this touch here in the, in the beginning of verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? And you get the picture there. You ever done this? Sure, as parents, you know, especially when your kids are real little and they cry and you pick them up, you know, and, and you dab the tears from their eyes and comfort them. That's the picture here. Now, you say, well, but if there's no more tears, well, then how? It's a phrase. It's, it's God portraying the fact that He's going to end sorrow and crying. He goes on to say that. But it's Him personally who does it. Very personal touch. And just think for a moment how nice it'll be. You know, after you get done with this reverie, you're going to have to come back to reality because death, sorrow, and crying are still here. But it's nice just to think about it for a moment. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. You ever experienced those things? My, as you know, my dad passed away just a few months ago. I experienced every one of those. Think about your own life and the times, you know, when you're in deep distress, sorrow, you wept. No more. The causes of, the, of those things are going to be gone. Not just the symptoms, the crying and the sorrow, but the things that cause them are going to be done away with forever. Gone. You ready to go there now? <laughs> Praise God. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write for these words, are true and faithful. Well, he said at the end of uh, verse 4 that the former things have passed away. And I love this statement here. He says, I make all things new. 
Isn't that great? You know, what I, I, I did not need reformation. That wouldn't have done any good. If you started with the old Rick and tried to improve on him, it doesn't work. It took a new creation. Only God can do that. That's what you need, by the way, if you don't know the Lord. No New Year's resolutions. No say, okay, I'm going to live a better life. None of that business. It's not going to work. The raw material you're working with is bad to start with. Okay? That's the problem. But 2 Corinthians 5 says, If any person is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. All things have passed away, just like it says here. The old things are gone. All things have become new. Only God can do that. And so here he does it. And I love the way he answers. He says, uh, right for these words are true and faithful. He's confirming the fact, look, this is going to happen. You can go to the bank on it. Nothing is going to change the future. I am going to make sure this happens. And he said to me, verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Alpha and Omega. Okay, well, that's just the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But he's saying something here. Really, he's saying the same thing as, as the next phrase, the beginning and the end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? In the beginning, before you and I existed, before the earth existed, Jesus Christ was. Okay, He is. He's continued throughout earth's history. He'll be here when it's over. Okay? He's not going away. He's the beginning and the end. It says in Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament, that uh, the heavens and earth are going to grow old like a garment. It's growing old, isn't it, the earth? And it says he's going to fold them up. Like you'd fold up an old, old garment, you know, and uh, give it to the thrift store or something. But he's still going to be here. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The beginning and the end. The faithful one. Unchanging. Ever faithful. And that's the one, if you know him, that you will be with forever. Guaranteed. Faithful and true. Verse 7 is, uh, again, getting back to the intimacy of the relationship. He says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son forever. Verse 8. This is a, really fits into the category of the uh, no mores. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I think God puts us here for two reasons. Well, actually three. The first one is a warning. It's a warning. If you have not been saved, if your sins, which are in this list, have not been washed away by His blood, then you're in this category. And you won't be in the new city with Him. It's a warning. The other is, it's an encouragement to us as believers. It says, first of all, that when we're with Him, this stuff isn't going to be there anymore. It's not going to be around. It's going to be gone. Wouldn't that be nice? But it also says that I don't have to worry about it in my life anymore. No more sin. No more struggling with the flesh. Not just the 
penalty of sin paid, not just the power of sin gone, but the very presence of sin in my life. Ah, won't that be glory? Praise God. No more. It's going to be all gone forever. God's going to see to it. And it has to be that way. Remember, it's where God is. It couldn't be any other way. He is the one who is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, as it says. He does that. Now, I'm not going to go through the list. Sometimes we come to lists. I like to go through, and I encourage you to do that. But I just want to pick on one thing. Why does it begin? You would think it would, say, it would start with, like, murderers or something. Why does it say cowardly at the beginning? Well, I think it's uh, very important because those who are without the Lord, who shun God, who don't want God in their life, really are acting from fear in two ways. The first way is people don't want to get serious about God. They don't want God in their life. They don't, they don't want him to uh, rule over their lives. They don't want him to even be an important part because they're afraid of what their friends might say or what anybody might say. Fear. Don't you think that's true? Fear of people will keep people from God. I think the other source of fear, though, is they're afraid of what God might do to them. What I mean is I think they're afraid of what God might make them do. I know, I remember, I felt that way before I was saved, you know. Oh, no, you know. Is he going to send me to some remote part of the earth, you know, and, and uh, live with a grass skirt or something like that? You know. The, both fears are totally unfounded. You know, the first one, who cares what people think? if we're talking about the issue of going to heaven or hell, of knowing God or not. You know, that kind of... I don't care what people think. I care what God thinks. And the second one, that, that is so unfounded to be afraid of what God might do if I give my life to Him. Help. Hello. You know, can you think of anybody you could trust more than God with your life? It says in Jeremiah, it's not in a man to direct his own steps. I can't even run my own life. So I don't want to hand it over to me, and I certainly don't want to hand it over to you. I am so glad I've handed it over to Jesus. He knows how to handle it. I can trust him with it. Now, I said we were going to look in detail at the city. Now we get into the, the uh, detailed description. We're not going to read all the verses here, and you'll see why, because uh, several sections are a long list of uh, precious stones. But we'll re read the beginning section here, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to, him, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. He's talking about the city. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, and so on. Three gates on each side. Makes sense, right? Four times three is twelve. In verse 14, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. He measures it. It uh, ends up being, now brace yourself, if you don't know this, if you're not sure how big it is, it's pretty big. It's about 1,400 miles long. 
1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles high. Wow. <laughs> Only God could do something like that. If you want to get an idea of how big that is, picture a map of the U.S., cut it in half. This thing would cover the whole western portion of the U.S., from Washington down to Mexico, from the Pacific coast over to Kansas. Okay? But not only is it that big in breadth, I mean, that's staggering enough, but it's that big this way, too. Now, we don't build cities that way, but God does, all right? Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And when we read this passage, really what I'd like to do is just look back because it is so appropriate uh, that God does it this way. Look back at Hebrews real quick. Just make a quick left turn. You don't have to go very far. Hebrews 11. You see, because there have been so many saints who have gone before us who were looking for this city and never saw it. And it's going to be so right when at last he comes through with that city. Hebrews 11. First of all, talking about Abraham. Verse 9. Talking about Abraham, it says in verse 9, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, why? For he waited for the city which has foundations. And he talks about the foundations of the city back there in Revelation. Whose builder and maker is God. Isn't that neat? I believe he's talking about this city. He's waiting for it. He, Abraham waited for it and he never saw it. He died in faith. But someday he's going to see it. And all the waiting and the hoping will not have been in vain. All the waiting and the hoping and the looking forward of all the saints that died in faith waiting for that time will all be realized and God will be shown to be true. Uh, later, he says a similar thing in verse 13. These all died in faith, talking about the Old Testament saints, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, that's a good application for us right there. Because as these saints, they couldn't see anything permanent here on this earth that would grab their hearts, you know? Where they could settle down and say, ah, oh, here I am at home. They couldn't. On this earth, they were pilgrims. That means they were moving through to someplace else. That's a good word. The other, they were strangers. In other words, I really don't belong here. It says elsewhere in the New Testament, our citizenship is in heaven. So we're pilgrims. We should be thinking about it that way. We're moving through. And we're strangers here. Verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. In other words, they haven't got it yet. My homeland, I'm, I'm not in my homeland yet. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, the, the place... them and there's the city in Revelation chapter 21 God is faithful okay back to Revelation well the city itself is it's beautiful beyond comprehension you can see John as you read through this whole section here straining to try to portray it uh, the stones that are listed for example in um, 18 through 20 
and even 21 the pearls they're not sure what all the, these stones are but they know enough about them that there's every color in the rainbow in the ones that they do know now another word about the city while we're on it this is not the city of Ezekiel there's, there is a, about an 8 or 9 chapter description of really it's a description of a temple if you read it that is the millennial temple that will be on the earth where worship will be conducted during the millennium and if you read it and compare it to this it is not the same place it is not the same thing in fact it's primarily a temple there are a lot of similar phrases in it but that's where the similarity stops most importantly if you just read on here in uh, chapter uh, 22 Uh, let's see here. There, pardon me. Verse 22 of chapter 21. There it is. 21, verse 22. But I saw no temple in it. He's talking about the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Well, the city that's described in Ezekiel 40 through about 48 majors on the temple because it's going to be during the millennium and worship will be conducted there. And in this city, there is no temple. They're not the same place. I say that because I'm leading up to something. Because of that, many expositors will say, oh, okay, we have this um, earthly city for Israel, and then we have this heavenly city for the church that comes down, and it kind of hovers above the earth. And so you've got this floating city, and you've got this city down on the ground for the nation of Israel, and you've got this city up in the air for the church. And there apparently is some sort of passageway, you know, between the two. Which has no basis in, in the scripture. God doesn't say, in fact, where the city goes when it comes down. He says, John just says, I saw it coming down from heaven. He doesn't say if it floats, if it lands on the earth. It probably does if it has foundations. Okay? But more importantly, as you read the description here in Revelation, first of all, clearly it's, it's also for the nation of Israel. It's not just for the church. He, uh, first of all, it's called the New Jerusalem. Secondly, it's got the names of the twelve uh, tribes of Israel on it. Hello? That's not the church. But it also has the names of the twelve apostles on the foundations. And so, I don't know, that bothers me, this kind of segregation idea, you know, of the Jews and earthly people, and they have this one place, and the church or heavenly people, they have this other place. No! And I think sometimes people get too much into this schism of Israel and the church, certainly, I'm the first one to say that Israel is not the church. But in the eternal state, there are no second-class citizens and there's no segregation. There's the heavenly city, which is the residence of all saints of all times. Add to the fact that, look, there's more than just Israel in the church. Do you know that? For example, before Abraham, were there Jews? No! <laughs> Was the church? Well, what were believers then? Yeah, that's right. If anything, call them Gentiles, okay? But they, they weren't uh, Israel and they weren't the church. A lot of believers there. We got three of them named right there in Hebrews 11. He, he talks about Enoch. He talks about Noah. He talks about Abel. What about them? And what about all the believers at that time? What about all of the non-Jews and certainly non-church that are saved during the tribulation and in the millennium? What about them? Is there a third cube or something, you know? No. 
And in fact, in 22 through 27, the, the word nations appears, and that can be just as easily translated Gentiles. The point is, I believe strongly, that there's one city that's the residence for all the people of God in the eternal state, and his throne will be in the middle of it. And since it has foundations, I believe, yeah, it's just going to come down and rest on this new earth. Now, since there's no sea, you're going to have to kind of change your thinking about the geography. I don't know what it's going to look like, you know. Okay. So the size, um, it's not like anything you've ever seen. <laughs> That's all I can say. And it can accommodate a lot of people. And this should bring to mind, by the way, John 14, when the Lord Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. This is the place he's preparing. And no matter how you picture it, you know, you're going to fall short right now in your imagination. But let me tell you, you will not be disappointed, brother and sister, when it comes. But again, it's not the place. It's the person. That's, that's the heart of everything. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, 22 through 27, at the end of chapter 21, has a lot of no mores. Again, I saw no temple in it. There's no more temple. Why would we have a temple? Why would we have these symbols when we have the Lord Jesus himself, you see? The shadows are gone. The symbols are gone. They're, they're not needed anymore. The props are gone. Here's, a, here's an interesting one, 23. The city, city had no a need of the sun or the moon. There's no more sun and no more moon. You're going, oh no, how can I do without the moon? What about the sun? How am I going to live? <laughs> That's what I said. You've got to throw your presuppositions out the window. We don't need them. Could you imagine it becoming night? Think about it. Where the Lord Jesus is in his glory, you know, it gets dark outside. That's silly. And you say, well, how am I going to sleep? You're not going to sleep. Does that shock you? You know, we get tired now. I love to sleep. You like to sleep? Isn't it a nice thing to sleep? It's because you need it. It's because I need it. We're not going to need it then. We're not going to grow tired, you see. Your eyelids are not going to grow heavy. It'll be fun. It'll be great. Trust me, okay? Trust the Lord. Trust His Word. <clears throat> but no more sun and no more moon. Why? Because the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed then. It's not going to be veiled as it was in His first coming. And it is, and it is so great and so all-encompassing that it's going to illuminate everything. Just pause and think for a second. What will things look like when they're illuminated by His glory? I think it's going to be a different way of seeing things rather than these photons coming out of these fluorescent lights, you know, and bouncing off of things. There's a quality to him and his glory that these lights don't have. And we won't know until we get there. No more sun, no more moon. The nations of those who, and I said nations could just as easily say Gentiles, who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The gates shall not be shut at all by day. If you saw the gates earlier and you're wondering why are there gates, don't worry about it. They're never closed. They're open all the time. And, it, and it's, Important. God has them there and they're always open to symbolize the fact that there's going to be perfect peace and safety. The reason they had walls with gates in them in, in, them in, the, uh, in the Bible, which is this, this is a picture from, was to keep bad guys out. You know? My, uh, my uh, son just got a, a, a present from uh, one of the saints in the uh, assembly here. 
they, my boys love Avalon Hill games. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. But there's one called the Siege of Jerusalem. And the whole center of this thing is the walls that were around Jerusalem in about 66 A.D. And the gates that they closed that were assailed by the Romans. Okay, they were the strong points, the walls with the gates. And here God is showing plainly the gates are always open. You don't have to worry. You know, there's not going to be anybody coming in and and, uh, attacking or bringing something evil into the city. No more. In fact, he says that. Verse 27, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, 22, it really is a continuation of chapter 21 because he continues to describe the city, but now he's talking about the, the throne of God and the presence of God in it. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be, here's another no more, no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Okay, well, we could make a whole sermon out of the ties here between these last two chapters in Revelation and the first three chapters of the Bible. You have the creation of the heavens and earth, mention of the sun and moon, although you had them in Genesis and you don't have them here. The curse, which came about in Genesis chapter 3, is removed here. You have the tree of life. You have the uh, presence of God with his people. We could go on and on. There's There's a long list. But I think it's wonderful that when God finished inspiring his book, that it ends up that way. You know? That you've got the first couple of chapters really introducing the problems, so to speak, and then the last few chapters resolving everything with a happy ending. Isn't that great? That's the way God is. Okay, um, gates were always closed, as I said. Uh, It's a place of security. He mentions again that there's no need of uh, a sun or moon because the Lord is the source of the light. Again, he says in verse 6, these words are faithful and true, saying you can rely on it. This is going to happen. Okay, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to jump down to verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, in case you're wondering who that is, um, and this is a good passage, by the way, to use with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses if you want to show them that Jesus is God. Because look back at chapter 1. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who's that speaking? Yes, it's Jesus. But if you show this to Jehovah's Witness, they're not going to see Jesus here because the Word's not here. It's the Lord. It's God. Now, if you go back and read this passage again in in 22 that we just looked at, let's see who's speaking here. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, look down at verse 16. He identifies himself. Verse 16, I, Jesus, 
Wow. I am God. And again, he's calling uh, forth his, his titles to stress the fact that he can't lie. These things are going to happen. And he's great enough to make them happen. Okay, that's really why these things are here. 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Does this mean you're saved by works? No. It's the evidence of a saved life. In fact, uh, back at verse 7, there's a similar phrase. Verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecies of this book. How do you do that? Think about it. He's talking about the book of Revelation. And he says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. How do you, how do you keep the words of a prophecy? Well, it's very simple. First of all, you believe them. Just like anything else Jesus says. You begin by believing. And if you really believe them, think about what we've talked about as we've gone through Revelation, the things that are going to happen. If you really believe those things, you're going to live in light of them. Right? It's going to affect my life if I really believe these things are true. And that's what he means. Keeping the words of the prophecy. Okay, again, he uh, talks about, uh, verse 15, that outside are the sinners. Not going to come in. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David the bride and morning star. And then we have three invitations in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Three comes there. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, um, people are divided as to who is, uh, who is speaking, who they are speaking to in the first two invitations. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. It sounds possibly like the believers saying to the Lord Jesus, Come, doesn't it? Yes, isn't that what we probably generally think? However, the next one, And let him who thirsts come, that's clearly an invitation to those that are without Christ to come and believe in him. It's very, very much like Isaiah 55. So there are some who think that all three of these are just strong invitations to those who don't know Christ to come now while there's time. Whether it's all three or just the third one, the point is, as God is wrapping up not just prophecy in the last book of the Bible, but the Bible itself, really some of his last words are saying, look, come now. Hurry up, come. You know, don't waste any time. And as I read this, I thought of an incident in my childhood that uh, I've told some of you about before that is still with me to this day. I can remember it as if it were yesterday. I was about six or seven years old and I was on an outing with my grandparents. <clears throat> they took me to Sacramento to some friends that they knew. And uh, when I was that age, often like six and seven-year-olds, you know, when, when the parents and the grandparents go visiting, you know, there's nothing worse than sitting in the living room while they all sit around talking, you know, and you're sitting like this over on the couch, you know, trying to be interested in what they're talking about. You kids have never been. I see some grinning kids. Yeah, you can relate to that. Huh? And so um, they let me go outside because there was a little boy. I guess he was a neighbor or something playing outside. And I had a great time. We were playing together. 
And uh, it came time to go home. We lived in Vallejo at the time, so get the picture. You know, home was Vallejo. This is Sacramento. And uh, <clears throat> my grandfather, Bert, got in the car with uh, my grandmother, Clara. And uh, Bert said, okay, Rick, come on. You know, time to go home. Now, I did something that I know kids do sometimes. I pretended I didn't hear him. You ever done that? And I sat there playing with, with this friend. I mean, I really like this guy now. We had a great time. I didn't want to stop. I can understand how Bert must have felt now, you know. And he said, Rick, come on, it's time to go. And then at that point, it became a kind of a match between me and him as to who was going to give in first. Because I continued to pretend like I didn't hear him. See, there was a long sidewalk, probably about from here to the back of the room, and we were playing right next to the, the buildings up here. So the car was about back there, and I was here, you know, just playing with this guy, and Bert's over there saying, come on, Rick. He said, Rick, if you don't come, we're going to leave. And when I heard that, I said, oh, he'd never do that. And this is what has impressed this moment on my memory so graphically. Because the next thing he did was he started the car and he drove away. I'll tell you, I was scared. As a six, six-year-old kid, I got up and I started running, but by then he was gone. And he went down the street and out of sight. And I can still remember running down that street with the tears just running down my eyes. I was almost blinded by the tears as I was running, trying to catch up with them. And I finally stopped because I couldn't see him anymore. And I might as well have been on Mars, you know, as far as getting back home. Sacramento, Vallejo. I had no idea how to get home. I didn't know what I was going to do. He made an impression on me, let me tell you. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's saying to you, come. It's time to come home, you see. If you don't know him, he's calling. I don't know how many times you've heard him call and how many times you've pretended not to hear but there's going to come a time when figuratively he's going to start up the car and drive away. And he says chilling words to the Jews in, in one of the Gospels. He says, and where I go, you cannot come. You will seek me and you will not find me. You don't want to wait until that time. If you hear him calling, man, come now. Today is the day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we thank you for your word. And as we see this beautiful picture of what it'll be like, Lord, we look beyond the city, all the precious stones, the gold that's like clear glass, the river, the trees, and we see you. As we sing in the hymn, Lord, the bride eyes not her garment, but our dear bridegroom's face. And Lord, each one here who knows you, we, we say that plainly to you right now. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We want to see your face. We want to be with you. And as we say those words, we think about those right now who are outside, still outside, but you're calling them. Lord, may they not continue to pretend to not hear you. May they... Come now before it's too late. For we ask it in your name. Amen.